It's great to be with you once again. We're going to go over our Sunday School lesson. And I am uh, sorry, as usual, that we can't meet together in our classes and in our small groups because I know that's a whole lot more enriching to you to be able to discuss things and ask questions and get input from other people. But we'll do what we have to do. And at the same time, we're grateful for what we can do through all of this. And we appreciate, of course, everyone who helps us do all of this and uh, make it available to you. As we have been going through the Beatitudes, one of the things that you will notice is that this is completely different than the kingdom of this world. We forget sometimes that in the book of Colossians, Paul tells us that when we got saved, we became citizens of a new kingdom. It says that he translated us out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of Jesus Christ, a kingdom of light, a spiritual kingdom. Jesus said before Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world or my servants would be fighting. You know, Peter kind of tried that a little bit and ended up cutting off a guy's ear and Jesus told him, put away your sword. This is not about revolution. This is not about taking over. This is not about getting rid of the Romans. Now there'll be a day for that when the Lord returns. Later on, the Bible does promise an earthly kingdom, but it wasn't at that time. Jesus came to be the sacrifice for sinners and to usher us into a spiritual kingdom. A lot of people didn't understand that at the time. I think a lot of people that followed Jesus during those days were expecting free food. They were expecting um, a revolutionary to rally the people and overthrow Rome and get rid of the Gentiles out of the Holy Land. There were people in that day that actually believed that as long as Gentile dust from the feet of Gentile soldiers and sandals was on the Holy Land, that the Messiah wouldn't come. And so they were looking at Jesus not so much as the Messiah that was promised in the Bible, but they were thinking of Messiah more in terms as someone who could rally the troops, someone who could stir up revolutionary fervor so that they could get rid of the Gentiles and then God would send the true Messiah. You can see how messed up that gets. And that comes from people that would take the Word of God, parts of it, the parts that they liked, and then try to form their theology about what seemed good and palatable to them instead of taking the truth as a whole. In fact, how in the world could Israel miss the fact of what Jesus came to do, what Messiah was supposed to do, when they would read Isaiah chapter 53. It's very clear in there. In fact, the rabbis would agonize. Who is this suffering servant who is a substitute? Who is this person who is wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities that the chastisement for our peace is upon him? Who is this person when it says all we like sheep have gone astray, but God laid the iniquities of us all upon him? It didn't make sense to them until they would think of Messiah in the way that Jesus is presented. Then it makes perfect sense. But they couldn't understand that and they wanted a God and a Messiah and a religion and a righteousness that was all of their own making. Which, before we criticize them, isn't that the world we live in? Isn't that our tendency? We want God to act the way we want Him to act and we want salvation on our terms and we want a kingdom that fits our ideals, 
goals and motives. And Jesus looks and says, no, I'll have no part of that. My kingdom is not of this world. So whenever you are a person who truly is saved and you're in the kingdom of God, then you're a person who was spiritually bankrupt, poor in spirit, right? You're a person who mourned over your sins, realizing that they had to be paid for and that they were paid for by God himself sending his own son to die on the cross to be punished in your place and the wrath of God poured out upon the innocent Son of God. And so we take those Beatitudes and we realize that what are they? They are not what brings salvation, but they are the result of God's grace bringing us to salvation. This is what kingdom citizens look like. Now, we are going to notice, in fact, Jesus kind of gives a double emphasis at the end of this. This is not going to make you the most popular person in the world, is it? And we're going to talk a little bit about why that is so, and uh, hopefully we'll understand it a little better. Notice what Jesus says in Matthew 5, 13 and 14. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? In other words, what are you going to do to make salt salty? You can't put salt on salt. It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world, and a city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Now notice he didn't say, try to be salty and try to let your light shine. In fact, he's telling us here that salt that has the saltiness in it, I mean, it's going to be evident. There's nothing you can really do about that. And a city that is set on a hill how are you going to hide that? It shines out like a beacon. And I think what the Lord is saying, if you are truly saved, truly a part of the kingdom, then these principles that are laid out in the Beatitudes are going to be a natural part of your life. Now, maybe they're not to the extent we would like for them to be because we're all growing and learning and we all stumble in many ways, as the book of James says, but they'll be there. And as they are there, you are different. You have a different motivation. You have a different power. You have a different uh, desire in your heart than the people that are in the kingdoms of this world that must one day be conquered by Christ. So how do we live in the meantime? Salt and light. And it's interesting that Jesus says that you are the salt of the earth and you are the light of the world. And the only reason that that would ever be true is because he lives in us. These are characteristics of God. These are characteristics of Jesus, the Messiah, the King of kings and Lord of lords, our King, and he lives in us and he has changed us so that the way that we relate, the way that we live, and the way that we affect other people is different than anything that is in this world. So we're going to talk about this because the Beatitudes are going to make you different. When I was growing up, I can remember uh, preachers and youth pastors and others telling us that we needed to be different. I've come to realize that if you actually are born again and your heart is right with God, your sins are paid for by Christ, you're indwelt by the Holy Spirit, you don't have any choice except to be different. I'm afraid that sometimes we have made Christianity more just a moral code of ethics. Just live by this. Here's what you do. Here's what you don't do. And then we have to push and prod and 
reward and coax people to do what they ought to do naturally. I've never in my life, I love dogs, but I've never in my life had to teach a dog or reward a dog to get him to bark, to get him to tear up trash or something like that. Uh, they just do that because they're dogs. It's their nature. And I have never had to try to get a cat to act like a dog. Well, that would be bad, wouldn't it? And so all of this stuff comes because of the nature that we have. Well, when you got saved, you received a new nature. And inside of you are orders from your king, and they're reiterated in the word of God. And why do I put it that way? Do you remember the apostle Paul told um, one group of believers, I can't remember where it was now, you are taught by God how to love one another. And then he commands them to love one another. What was happening is what God had put in their heart through their new nature is now reiterated by the word of God because the world is going to pull you in a lot of different directions. But we follow the leadership of the Holy Spirit and we follow that. We know we're following that because of what the word of God says. So the two of them work together and as they work together, we become different and distinct from anything that is in the world. So when we talk about being salt and light, let's talk about some things here that, first of all, we counteract the rottenness. Back in the days in which Jesus lived, they didn't have electricity and they didn't have refrigeration. And so they either had to pack things in ice, and ice was a rare commodity. Only the very rich could have ice. Can you imagine the next time you want a cold drink and you just go to your refrigerator and you get ice and then you get water and you have a cold refreshing drink or whatever you want can you imagine that even kings as rich as solomon to have a, a cold drink to have ice in that was something that was very rare and extremely expensive it had to be brought from the mountains and you know and it had to be kept from melting uh, very very difficult when you think about how they would preserve meat they would do something that would be strange to us but it worked for them because salt was something that was plentiful. Salt was more valuable to them than it is now. Have you ever heard the statement, someone says he's not worth his salt? Did you know that the word salary, what you get in your paycheck, comes from the Latin word for salt? And did you know that back in the times of Jesus, Roman soldiers sometimes were paid in salt? Doesn't that sound strange to us? But salt was important to them because they would use it to preserve especially meat. Meat was hard to come by. A lot of times in Bible days, people would have bread for meal after meal after meal. And then when they could have some type of meat, it was for a special occasion. Think about the prodigal son. They didn't kill the uh, fatted calf every day, kind of like we do. The fatted calf was only for very special occasions. And all the other times when food is mentioned, it's almost always called bread in the Bible. Poor people, common people, didn't have meat as a regular staple of their diet. and probably had less cholesterol too, didn't they? But uh, how did they preserve the valuable meat for the times that they needed it? Well, they would salt it down. Well, when the Bible talks about us being the salt of the earth, there's a part of us that restrains the evil that is in the world. There's a part of us, the church, the believers, the way that we teach, the way that we live, we have a positive influence on a decaying 
and rottening world. The Bible tells us that this world is passing away. It is heading toward a date of destiny, of destruction and judgment. Now, we look around and see all kinds of things that scientists tell us will destroy the world, but don't worry about that. The Bible says that God himself is going to call everything to a halt, and he's going to destroy this earth. He'll take care of us. Don't worry about that. And he's going to make a new heaven and a new earth. That's all in God's hands. But the world is heading that direction. So why is it that sometimes we have optimism that things are getting better, that people are becoming better, that society is getting better? Well, we kind of have a, a disillusionment about what's going on. We're not getting better and better, but actually things are heading, as the Bible says, in the latter days, perilous times will come. Now, every once in a while, the Lord may give us a reprieve. And there may be a time of revival. There may be a time of spiritual awakening. And I'm praying like you are that God will do that in our land and do that for us and do that through us. That would be wonderful. But that'll be temporary and things are moving in the direction God has planned because this world is passing away. That's an interesting phrase too because that's what we say when someone dies. We say that they have passed away. Well, the world is in the process of dying. Now, what is it that God uses to slow down that process? I mean, the Bible says about the devil, he is the thief that comes to kill, steal, and destroy. Well, what keeps him from doing his entire agenda? We've seen little glimpses of what the devil's agenda might be under Hitler and the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia, what we've seen under militant radical Islam and terrorism and all kinds of things. We see little glimpses. We see the move toward a one-world government and one-world currency. We see the move toward government control over every part of our lives. All of that tell us just glimpses of what the devil would do if, let me, let me emphasize this, if he could. And what restrains the devil from doing everything that he would want to do? Well, it is the restraint of the Holy Spirit through the believer, through those who are in God's kingdom. That means you and I function in a very, very important role. God is using us to keep the society from rottening as bad as it could. And that's why it's so unfortunate and so tragic when believers fall into scandal and into sin because we act more like the world and our salt loses its saltiness. How do you get that back? It's good for nothing except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. And I'm afraid that in the times in which we live, the church has become more worldly and less salty, maybe we should say. Vance Havner, the old preacher who was so quotable, said, the problem is the world has become so churchy and the church has become so worldly, you can't tell the difference. He also said that the church is like Noah's Ark. If it weren't for the stink on the inside, you couldn't stand the, if it weren't for the storm on the outside, excuse me, you couldn't stand the stink on the inside. And that's kind of the way this is all working. But understand that while we are here, we may not be everything we ought to be, but we are still the salt that restrains the enemy from doing everything that they would want to do. I think that that's what the Bible is talking about when it mentions in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. I mean, we don't understand it, but it's already here. 
Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. Well, who is the he and what is it that restrains? Okay, my personal opinion is the restrainer is the Holy Spirit in the lives of believers. Remember, we're temples of the Holy Spirit. We're the church of the living God. And that when the rapture takes place, then the restraint is removed. And all that has to happen for the devil to do everything that is predicted in the scripture during the great tribulation and all of that is for the restraint to be removed, for you to be removed. He can't do everything he wants to do because God indwells you. And God is restraining this world and this culture and the devil himself through you. So that's what it means to be salt in one respect. The second thing that I would want to call your attention to is the, um, we enhance what is good. Not everything, not everything in life is horrible, is it? We see some glimpses of even lost people doing some amazing and wonderful things. They invent things. They uh, sometimes do charitable work. We see them sometimes having compassion. And all of these are little glimpses of the glory of God. They are little glimpses of the fact that humans are image bearers of God. We're made in the image of God. Shattered and marred and broken and distorted, to be sure, because everybody suffers from depravity, right? We're born with Adam's nature. But even in the midst of that, there is still the image of God. And when we look around at this world, what is it that makes somebody um, weep when there's a tornado? I watched a Storm Chaser special the other night, and David Payne talked about in one of the more tornadoes seeing the destruction, and he said that he just broke down. What makes somebody do that? Well, it's the image of God within us. What makes somebody want to do something for the poor? It's the image of God within us. There are some things like that that are still in this world. So what do we do? Well, as believers, we are the salt of the earth, and salt not only was a preservative and is, but sometimes when you sit down to eat a meal, and it may be something that you get at a, at a very nice restaurant that you're paying a lot of money for, and you take one bite and you go, oh, this needs a little bit of salt. And so you take the salt shaker and you put not too much, just the right amount into it. Sometimes recipes, if you ever watch some of these cooking shows like my wife does, a judge will taste something and say, this is very good, but it wasn't salty enough. Salt does something to bring out flavor, to enhance the flavor of foods. I think that we are not only here on earth to retard the spoilage of earth, but also you and I as believers, we ought to be enhancing the things that are actually good. We should not be the most negative people on earth. We should be helpful. And when we see something going on in the world that displays God's image, that displays something good, we ought to be the ones that enhance that. We ought to be the ones that help that. We ought to be the ones that encourage that. We ought to be the ones that get behind that. Not that we would ever want to tell a lost person, this will get you closer to heaven or this will give you points with God because it doesn't. But it also means that we can, in some ways, join with, pray for, and support things that actually are helping people 
because we enhance it. It ought to be, as the Bible tells us, that the way we speak, it's supposed to be seasoned with salt, it says in the book of Colossians. Even our very speech ought to make things just a little bit better. It ought to be when we have a conversation with a lost person that whenever we say goodbye and part company that they say, I'm glad they came by. I'm glad they spoke to me. It ought to be that when we have a family gathering that we enrich everything because we're believers and our speech is seasoned with salt. It ought to be that anything that could be good on any level ought to be a little bit better because we were there, because we enhance it. Now, of course, there are some things we don't want to put our stamp of approval on, and there are some things we don't want to get entangled with and involved with. We have to have discernment. But there are a lot of interactions that we have in this world and with the people of this world. And so many times we find that people don't really care for Christians or want to be around Christians on any level. And we want to jump to the kind of the martyr syndrome and the persecution syndrome. Well, I'm just paying the price because I'm a Christian. Well, let me just ask you to pause just for a second and think about this. How many of those things actually came because you were a Christian? How many of those things actually came because you believed the truth? And how many of them came because you were rude? How many of those things came because you didn't love your neighbor as you love yourself? How many of those things came because you were insulting or something like that? We need to back up and think. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 13 that the greatest of these is love. And the Bible tells us that God is love and He indwells us. So shouldn't we be the most loving people on earth? Now we need to be careful because we don't define love the same way the world does. Read in 1 Corinthians 13 what the characteristics of love really are. And it makes a statement in there that love, there's a paraphrase, uses good manners. I find that a lot of Christians think that they're being persecuted. They think that they're fulfilling what Jesus said when the truth of the matter is they were just rude. We need to learn and we need to be careful. That's why the Bible says the children of darkness are smarter than the children of light. Lost people know how to get along. They don't always do it, but they know how. And Christian people, filled with the love of God, we ought to know more about how to get along, and we ought to enhance things in this world. And while the world will never embrace the God that we love until, by grace, they're saved, they may never embrace our beliefs, but it ought to be that they do recognize that Christians enhance things. Now there was a time when you could talk to the average American and they thought it was a good thing to be involved in church. They may not have any use for God, but they thought it was good that people would be in church. In fact, they would put their children in church because everybody ought to go to church and be in Sunday school. Have you noticed that those days are gone? When we were in Albany, New York, we were helping uh, River of Life Church with some things. And I remember Susan Marshall asked Sean Pierce, the pastor, why don't you do some of these things on the church property? Now here's the illustration of what I'm talking about. He said, have you noticed the Roman Catholic Church scandals with the priest abusing young children? Well, she said, yes. And he said, that is affecting all of the churches here because in our area, 
Church is not looked upon as something beneficial. It's looked upon as a place where you go and they take your money and they abuse your kids. So we choose to go other places to make our presence known, to help people, to get to know people, to build relationships, and then we invite them to the church because when they see something good in us, then they're not as afraid to go to our property and to our buildings. Well, that's a tragic thing whenever the church of the Lord Jesus Christ has a reputation like that. And I think when you go back, if you're as old as I am, to the scandals of uh, Jim Baker, Jim and Tammy Baker, and Jimmy Swagger, those kind of things back in the 80s, all of that has tarnished our reputation. And the world doesn't know the difference between a false prophet and a true prophet. They don't know the difference between a bad church and a good church. All they know is it's all church. And what happens is we get tarnished by all of that and we're no longer seen as something that is helpful, something that is a blessing, something that is good. Another story from Albany, Sammy and I were walking through a neighborhood praying and talking to anyone who was out there and we asked one man, what do you think a church could do for this neighborhood? And he looked up at me and he goes, nothing. And that's what has happened. And so we build our buildings and we say, y'all come. And the world looks at us and they go, why? And a lot of times the reason they don't want to come to church is because they've met us in the workplace. They've met us in the neighborhood and they didn't like what they saw. So when you think about salt, don't only think about it as keeping the spoilage down, but think about it as this. Do you and I enhance other people? Do we bless them? Do we encourage them? Do we make life a little more flavorful as we are living and as we are going about um, our daily walk, actually. It's not just so much how we act in the building, it's how we act when we leave the building. And by the way, that would even include in the home. Colossians chapter 4, 5, and 6 says, Walk in wisdom toward outsiders. Outsiders, people outside the church, the lost world. Making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, pardon me, gracious, seasoned with salt so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. That's the way we're supposed to live, the way we conduct business, the way we interact with other people, always in wisdom and always seasoned with salt. The third thing that I noticed about salt is that it creates thirst. I remember the first time I heard this was from my dad. He said, um, somebody said, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make them drink. And Dad said, you can if you salt down his oats. I know a lot of other people have said that, but I remember my dad saying that the first time. We ought to be the salt that creates thirst. There's a lot of living going on on this world, and we're involved in an awful lot of it. You have to send your kids to school. You have to go to the grocery store. You have to eat. You have to... Uh, buy clothes, all of these kind of things that we are a part of. And then there are all the optional things that we uh, can be a part of as well. A lot of you go to football games in the fall. A lot of you uh, work outside the home. You have hobbies and you have uh, extra businesses or things like that. And we interact with a lot of people. Here's what I think Jesus is telling us. Does the interaction that we have create thirst in the lives of others? Are they interested? Do we live in such a way that they show interest, that they're asking questions? It's been on my heart, and that's why I've mentioned it so much lately. 
I was raised that witnessing is get out there and get in their face and talk to them. Well, I've seen sometimes when the Lord gave that opportunity and it was kind of a confrontive type thing. But Peter says, be ready, sanctify the Lord in your hearts, first of all, and be ready to give an answer for the hope that lies in you. You know what I think about that? We ought to be the kind of people that the world looks at and they say, why do you think like you do? Why do you have the hope that you have? And we're able to give an answer for it. And I think a lot of times when we go out into the world, we almost kick down their door and say, I'm here to tell you the good news about Jesus. And they're not interested. They're not asking that question. We're answering questions they're not asking. Well, why aren't they asking? And it may be because we're not creating any real thirst for them. And that's the way that we ought to be living. In the book of Revelation, in chapter 2, verse 17, And the Spirit and the bride say, Come, and let him who hears say, Come, and let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him drink of the water of life freely. I remember a long time ago hearing my father-in-law, you know, he had so many different sayings and a way of putting things, and I remember him preaching on that verse, and he says that we give the whosoever will gospel. Anyone who thirsts, let him come and drink. And here's a man out there that says, I'm not thirsty, and Jesus says, then I'm not talking to you. This is about those who thirst. I believe that God wants to use you and to use me, and maybe even in this times of this virus and high unemployment, the numbers that came out today were horrible. Well, during this time, could it be that God could use us to make people thirsty so that they finally start seeing a difference in true Christians, kingdom citizens, and they actually start asking the right questions, the questions that we so desire to answer of the good news of Jesus Christ. And fourthly, notice that we live the Beatitudes and then we receive the persecution. You see, the world cooks up life as they want it. And they don't like you messing with the recipe of adding the salt. The world is asleep. And they don't like you turning on the light. You ever had that happen? My mom used to do that when I'd have to get up for school. It'd be dark and I'm comfortable and I'm asleep and I want to sleep a whole lot longer than she wants me to. And so she would just flip on the light. Maybe flash the lights. Uh, it's not very pleasant when that kind of thing happens. And that's the way we are in the world. Because as much as we are trying to be at peace with other people and to show them love and to be kind to them, loving God with all of our heart and loving our neighbor as we love ourselves, carrying out the great commission and the great commandment, you know, sometimes there are people in the world that will appreciate that. And we ought to do our best to be the kind of people that are appreciated. But we can never compromise. And we can never change the message. And we can never change who we are. And so when we live the Beatitudes, the world doesn't like it because we don't play according to their rules. We don't fix life according to their recipe. And they resent it. And persecution comes. Sometimes we turn on the light and shine light on things that they would rather not see. And it makes them uncomfortable and they persecute us. And if that's the case then all we can say is, so be it. May we live for the glory of God. But at the same time, 
as I mentioned earlier, if the ineffectiveness and maybe some of the quote-unquote persecution we're having comes because we're just not likable and we are not good people, we're not helpful in what we do, what we say, and the way that we think, then may God correct us and may God forgive us. And may we become more usable as salt and light as we go throughout this world and throughout the time that we have between now and death. Let me read to you, as we have done before, from the British preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones from his book, Studies in the Sermon on the Mount. It says, and I quote, You notice that in the second chapter of his first epistle, Peter does exactly the same thing. He says, You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that you should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. It is exactly the same here. We are poor in spirit and merciful and meek and hungering and thirsting after righteousness in order, in a sense, that we may be the salt of the earth. We pass, therefore, from the contemplation of the character of the Christian to a consideration of the function and purpose of the Christian in this world and uh, in the mind and in the purpose of God. In other words, in these verses that immediately follow, we are told very clearly the relationship of the Christian to the world in general. And notice here that if you take this lesson to heart, there's some positive and there's some negative. You and I can't change the negative. The world doesn't love God and therefore they're not going to love us and Jesus promised us that. In the world, he also said you'll have tribulation. That's a promise from God. But how we react, how we respond, how we live during that and how we treat other people is a big, big, big key in us fulfilling what Jesus has called us to be as salt and light. God bless you and thank you for taking time to listen to this video. And we'll look forward again, as we uh, always do, to the time when we can get together again. I started to say get back to normal, but there's a part of me that says I don't ever want to be normal again. I want to be better. And maybe through all of this, God does some things exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. And by His grace, may we come out of all of this better, more pleasing to Him and more useful to Him and better uh, as salt and light in a lost, dark, fallen world. Thank you so much and God bless.